Welcome to Newsweek's Foreign Service. I'm Josh Lowe. And I'm Marin Kidder. And each week we look at the big stories from the US and what they mean for the rest of the world. This week, we're looking at what we've titled the mini Trumps. And that's not an army of small children who support Trump. It's politicians across Europe who we feel are espousing many of the policies that Trump stated on the campaign trail and which basically got him into the White House. So we're using this term quite loosely. These people are not all identical, but we're using it to mean populist leaders espousing nationalist, um, often anti-immigration, anti-globalization views and riding similar concerns into office, or in some cases they hope into office, in the way that Trump has done in the US. And we've got a clip actually of Nigel Farage, who ran his own populist campaign for Brexit in the UK, um, has actually drawn a kind of explicit parallel between Trump's views and those of other nationalist leaders around the world. 2016, it's the year of political revolution. I mean, I've been dreaming of this for a couple of decades because I've always known that whatever our political class and their friends in the media and the big businesses, whatever they do and say and want, is not the same as what ordinary hardworking taxpayers want. Okay, but, you know, I'm always disinclined to listen too much to Nigel Farage, given that he has failed spectacularly at at becoming um, a member of parliament here. Obviously, Trump's been very successful. Farage hasn't. Are there any other people who could be replicating Trump's success in Europe? So just to run you down sort of seven mini Trumps just to get started. Um, so some of these are people who've already had some electoral success very recently. Uh, in Bulgaria, you've got Ruman Radev, who's a pro-Russian former air general. He had no political experience like Trump. He just won the presidential election. In Moldova on the same day, you had an anti-establishment candidate called Igor Dodon taking the presidency. And in Estonia, the government collapsed. And uh, you've now got Juri Ratas, who's leader of uh, the Centre Party, another populist party named as the Prime Minister. Then looking ahead, we've got four key electoral tests in Europe. You've got in Austria in December, uh, there's a rerun of their presidential election. Their Norbert Hofer from the far-right Freedom Party could easily win. Um, in the Netherlands, uh, there's a parliamentary election in March next year. You've got the anti-Islam politician Geert Wilders, leader of the Freedom Party. He could get the most votes, potentially lead a government. In France, there's a presidential election over April and May next year. And there, Marine Le Pen, who's the candidate for the hard-right National Front, could take the presidency. And finally, in Germany, There's a hard-right party, a little bit like UKIP, but a bit more kind of anti-Islam, called the Alternative for Germany. They're not going to win, but they might well take their seats in the national parliament. So it's like Snow White and the very frightening far-right seven dwarves. But you mentioned, Josh, at the start, um, three Eastern European politicians, and it doesn't sound like they're as sort of far-right and as nationalist as some of the politicians we're seeing popping up in the West. So, you know, what's different about these Eastern Europeans? Because they don't sound as similar to Trump as their Western counterparts. So the similarities are slightly different. So in the West, a lot of these parties have very similar views on Islam and that sort of thing to Trump. In the East, some of them share those views, some of them don't. But one thing they do share with Trump, Trump, as we know, what a lot of the establishment is concerned about is that he seems quite pro-Putin compared to other mainstream US politicians. Now, some of these Eastern European parties are very pro-Putin in the sense that they think those countries in which they've won elections should be looking towards Russia for partnerships, for influence, in some cases, turning away from the EU and from Europe uh, for those partnerships. And so what we might see uh, is an expansion of the influence of Vladimir Putin through the east of Europe as these parties take power. Okay, so it sounds like we've got some mini Trumps and we've got some mini Putins. I think that's probably enough from us. Let's go now to um, our correspondent, Owen Matthews, who's joining us, I think, from the back of a taxi somewhere in Moscow. 
Don't you love an extra $100 in your pocket? Have a TurboTax expert file your taxes for you by March 31st to get $100 back instantly. Because no matter what moves you made last year, TurboTax makes them count. That means getting $100 back and 100% accurate taxes only from Intuit TurboTax. Must file by 331. Credit only applicable to federal filing fees with TurboTax full service. Offer can be modified or terminated at any time. So, Josh, Owen, you've obviously written this great cover story for us all about what we're calling in this episode the mini Trumps, these politicians across Europe that do have a lot in common with the president-elect. And Josh, you focus more on Western Europe, Owen, much more on Eastern Europe and, and Russia's influence as well. So to kick things off, I wanted to ask both of you. What do the mini Trumps have in common with the big Trump? In the west of Europe, you've got parties like the Front National in France, which is an old party, but has kind of rebranded itself recently, shifted very slightly from the far right to the sort of populist right, uh, has a chance at winning the presidential election next year. And uh, Marine Le Pen, its its presidential candidate, has explicitly drawn a link between Trump's victory and and hers. You've got Nigel Farage in the UK, who campaigned for Brexit, has drawn a link between Trump and Brexit and has actually met Trump several times. And all of these parties share a kind of suspicion of mass immigration with Trump. They share a slightly suspicious, in some cases, hostile view of Islam with Trump. Um, And they share a kind of supposedly sort of anti-elite perspective Perspective with Trump as well. And then over in the East, which I think Owen will go on to talk about um, particularly, but also some of those parties I've just touched on, um, share a sympathy or an indifference towards Putin, which marks them aside from the kind of mainstream parties in their countries and which uh, they also share with the president-elect. And Owen, enlighten us. What do the Eastern European politicians have in common with Trump? Well, one of the curious things about um, Eastern Europe, if you take the last few years, is the anti-establishment feeling that brought Trump to power and has um, lay, lay behind Brexit actually is not confined to the to the right. It's, uh, there's actually a lot of far-left parties who uh, sympathise with, with Vladimir Putin, notably Syriza in, in, in Greece. But concerning the actual sympathy for Putin and Trump, which actually comes as part of a package for most of these new mini-Trumps in Eastern Europe. It's more or less the same wellspring as uh, Josh was talking about. It's uh, a strong anti-immigrant feeling. It's a feeling of deep disillusionment with Europe and the kind of commitments that countries have had to make and the disappointment with uh, the economic fruits that they've that they've had. And um, the the disturbing thing is that this mood has been around for a long time. I think that in Eastern Europe, it really began um, with the rise of Viktor Orban in uh, Hungary. And he's extremely anti-immigrant and has been pushing a very strongly nationalistic line. But that nationalism seems to be spreading. And as we saw last weekend in Bulgaria and Moldova, which is not part of the EU, it's part of a um, former part of the Soviet Union. But in both of those elections, you had surprise victories for uh, right-wing anti-establishment, anti-immigration, anti-elite candidates. And that's uh, you know, clearly continuum with, with what happened with Trump's victory. And one thing, Owen, that I wanted to touch on um, that you mentioned is that a lot of these parties, you know, particularly in Eastern Europe, have 
an affinity towards Putin and you said sort of by proxy that means they have an affinity towards Trump and it's something you touched on in your article as well it does seem that Russia's influence within Europe is growing is it too sort of hyperbolic to say that we're returning to an east versus west with Russia having a, a growing power within Europe I don't think it is hyperbolic unfortunately one can obviously take the analogy with the Cold War too far and with what the Americans used to call uh, domino theory that that uh, there was a zero-sum game that, that countries were either loyal to the east or the west and both sides were actually trying very hard, including by military means, that's the military history of the, of the Cold War, by fighting proxy wars to get people, to get countries to fall on one side of the divide or the other. But the analogy is true, not in terms of hard war, thank goodness, yet, but certainly in terms of soft power. Uh, the Russians are pushing very hard to get two things to happen. Firstly, to get as many allies in Europe as, as possible and supporting candidates. And uh, as we saw two weeks ago in Macedonia, even actually allegedly making some moves to support an attempted uh, abortive, it didn't happen, but a military coup in, in, in Macedonia for which some Russian citizens were arrested in neighboring Serbia. But the thing that's provably uh, linked to the Russian state is uh, informational support. And as a recent report by the uh, Czech intelligence service warned uh, material support for far-right parties throughout Europe. And that we know that, that there's been a certain amount of Russian funding for the Front National in France from Russian banks. Sorry, I was interested to hear from you, Owen, what, um, where you think Russia's kind of attentions might be turning next. What countries, what parties, what places is Putin going to be sort of next targeting for destabilization? And, and where is his influence growing most strongly? That's the big question. What's the next shoe to drop? Where, where are there going to be pro-Russian parties? I mean, ironically, actually, most of Eastern Europe is more spooked than charmed by Putin. And the Baltics are definitely terrified. Poland is, you know, strongly anti-Russian anti uh, and are very alarmed by Trump. Many areas of Eastern Europe are terrified by Trump's skepticism about uh, NATO and it's his announcements that NATO is obsolete and so on. So actually, for the most part, with a few exceptions, Eastern Europe is actually, you know, uh, especially the countries that border Russia are actually more more scared. Josh is better qualified to say uh, the, about the chances of pro-Trump parties in Western Europe. But uh, in Eastern Europe, I think there's no immediate sort of powerful pro-Russian movement in any major Eastern European country as yet. Apart in Bulgaria, of course, surprised everyone. So um, these things tend to sort of pop up. And since uh, the anti-establishment mood rolls on and Putin being pro-Putin seems to have become part of being anti-establishment, then I think, uh, you know, we, we should we should never say never. It's it, it, the, the, the politics of Europe have suddenly become deeply unpredictable. Yeah, and as Owen kind of suggested there, I guess another way to look at this might be to look at where the most successful um, potential chances in terms of elections coming up for some of these hard right parties who are both pro-Trump and pro-Putin. We covered some of this in the intro, but as we said there, you can look at, say, uh, Marine Le Pen in France um, and Geert Wilders in the Netherlands probably have the two best chances of uh, coming into office. And those are going to be the two potentially most destabilizing events coming up in uh, Western Europe, I would say. 
And I suppose the question then for um, a lot of Europe is how do mainstream politicians fight back against these mini Trumps? Because we saw in America that Hillary Clinton, who's arguably one of the most experienced people there to be president, you know, couldn't successfully combat Trump. What do we do with these populist nationalist parties, whether they are supporters of Trump or not? As listeners might remember, of course, we asked David Miliband about this last week, the former UK foreign secretary on this very podcast. And he was talking about making mainstream centrist politics kind of work for people better. Now, that's become basically a truism. It's something that politicians across the world say. Um, But it is crucial for people to find ways of doing that. So in France, for example, if you look at the people who are running or probably going to be in the final round against Marine Le Pen, it's probably going to be the centre-right candidate that will either be Francois Fillon um, or Alain Juppé. Both of those people have their own ideas about that. I think, for my money, Juppé probably has the better one. He has an idea of kind of bringing French ideals of solidarity and unity into the conversation around religious differences and working together to solve differences between Christianity and Islam in a secularist context. Now, that seems like a good way of engaging with these voters where they are and trying to sort of bring them back towards the centre ground. We'll see whether it works. I mean, another thing to, to bear in mind, the last two weeks, I appeared on literally dozens or a dozen Russian talk shows, and they're all delighted um, in Russia about Trump victory, and they're hailing this uh, revolution of uh, nationalism and patriotism, as they call it, across the world. But actually, the reality is that, frankly, well, A, of course, Hillary Clinton, as all the pollsters predicted, did win a majority of votes in America by a plurality of of, of two million. And it was an accident of the electoral system. But the real winner, actually, in America was apathy. 49% of voters did not vote at all. 26.5 voted for Trump, 26.7 voted for Hillary. So actually, 49 didn't vote at all. That's not quite the, the case with Brexit, because Brexit had an unusually high turnout, far higher than most general elections of of close to 70%. But nonetheless, I mean, I I think it's easy to overstate the accident of electoral politics. In in the case of Trump, it's a combination of, of apathy and the electoral college and a a problem with an electoral system designed to appease 18th century slave-owning southern landowners, which created the Electoral College. In Britain, it was local politics and a protest vote and and lots of other considerations. So um, I think there is a, a phenomenon which France has already been through last time Marine Le Pen got into the last round of the elections, is that actually when people really realize and think that dangerous parties are likely to get in, they're going to be less apathetic, uh, we hope. And um, I wanted to ask you guys a question, because when I was reading your collective article, there was such a long list of countries, you know, that are seeing these far right parties have a surge in support. And Owen, I hear what you're saying. It doesn't necessarily mean that they're going to win overall. But I mean, my question as sort of a layperson is, why is it that we're seeing this rising nationalism? And I think it is probably fair now to to refer to it as a wave and as a trend. So it's a big question, but can you guys help me out here? (laughs) I suppose one slightly wider part of this in the kind of electoral context is that people are starting to vote less along the kind of lines that their parents voted, the kinds of lines that people have always voted. Party identity has become less a part of people's personal identity. Party memberships have dropped. Union memberships have dropped. All of these kinds of things which sort of tied people into very traditional party structures are falling away. So you are in general seeing um, fragmentation of party systems. So in some countries that creates uh, opportunities for these new parties to rise. So it opens up electoral opportunities for them. You've also got 
since the 2008 financial crash, where you've had a lot of wage stagnation, people might be more uh, susceptible to scapegoating and blame about exactly what it is that's going wrong in their lives. That's a sort of fairly obvious point. And then, I mean, I guess, of course, we have got to address, you know, I'm skeptical a little bit about ideas about post-truth politics and this idea that there's sort of fake news everywhere and um, all of the media aren't providing any kind of sort of balancing of things as they used to. But there is some of that going on and there is an extent to which now if you say something sort of clever and fun and it makes good in a clickbaity headline, it can spread all over the place very quickly um, without uh, being particularly called up on or without being particularly counted. Um, and that's got to be something to do with it, as we saw in America. In Eastern Europe, the biggest factor, I think, pushing nationalism has been immigration. And it's been a very different kind of immigration from the kind of immigration that you see in Northern Europe. Because in Northern Europe, um, although it was a major issue in the Brexit debate, in fact, most of the immigrants, the vast majority of immigrants coming into Britain are not illegals. Although, despite the amount of, of press that the so-called jungle in Calais has got, numerically, they're very small. Most of the vast majority of immigrants are legal immigrants from, from Europe. Um, who pay their taxes and actually you know, come to Britain to, to work, but nonetheless put their presence puts a certain amount of pressure on public services, schools and healthcare and so on, which worry for you know, people in poor communities in Britain. In Eastern Europe, it's a different story because in Eastern Europe, they're at the sharp end of illegal immigration from Syria, from the Middle East, from, from Southeast Turkey, from Afghanistan and so on. And the Eastern Europeans that have seen in their own countries, there are people gate-crashing their borders and the giant sort of columns of people crossing the countryside and so on. And that's uh, culturally and economically threatening for them. So um, I, I think that nationalism and immigration are you know, clearly... Uh, directly linked. Yeah, and actually that's a very good point. Um, obviously you've had in the last couple of years uh, the refugee crisis sort of um, landing upon Europe's shores, this horrific displacement of people from North Africa and the Middle East and elsewhere who've kind of swept through Europe. Um, and something that's been quite interesting is that some of these parties have really been able to latch onto that and really saw massive poll boosts and massive changes in strategy because of it. If you look at, for example, the old alternative for Germany, um, in Germany they're kind of uh, UKIP or National Front equivalent. That was a fairly dry, mostly anti-Euro party, which as uh, the refugee crisis hit, as immigration became a bigger issue, shifted their focus much more into immigration and Islam. Similarly, in the Netherlands, you saw Gert Wilders' Freedom Party, which is an anti-Islam party, have massive poll boosts during 2015 when there was uh, this refugee crisis happening. In France, the National Front have started talking a lot more about Islam since the refugee crisis. So in Europe, particularly, not so much in Britain, but in continental Europe, Europe across the continent, um, this kind of influx of refugees has really turbocharged some of this uh, anti-immigrant sentiment, I think. It, it should also be noted that actually um, the, the, old, the old empires of uh, what Donald Rumsfeld would, would call old Europe are actually very used to immigrants and they have immigrant communities and they've had immigrant com communities for, for, you know, for much of the, of the post-war period. In Eastern Europe, immigration is a new thing. And it's there, I think, uh, for you know, various cultural reasons, I think you'll find that most Europeans are much more reflexively, casually racist, as it's culturally much more acceptable uh, because there are fewer immigrants. They are, um, you know, casually anti-Semitic. You, you hear constantly, you know, whether it's in in, in Budapest or you know, Kiev, Moscow. There's a much less politically correct culture, and that's an indicator of, you know, fundamental fear and lack of experience with uh, of, of of immigration. So I think actually, uh, although immigration has become a you know a big cultural and political factor, I think in the way 
wake of the refugee crisis, as Josh says, and also in the wake of terrorist attacks in, in Western Europe. In Eastern Europe, it, it's, it's also the shock of the new. They're just not used to, to immigrants in the same way. Well, we're, um, we're approaching the end of the podcast, but um, just before we finish, I wanted to try and get things onto a more positive note. So I'm going to ask a question that's very unlike me, and that is, if populist parties and politicians are the new normal, are there any positives to their existence, any positives to these mini Trumps popping up in Europe? I think if you're on the left, there may in the long term be, one would hope, um, assuming things don't go too wrong uh, with all of this, some sort of positive in that traditionally kind of left-wing parties have almost done their best thinking when they've been at their lowest ebb. You know, you saw in um, Britain in the 80s, for example, the Labour Party, which was out of power for years and years and years. That's when it did its cleverest, most creative thinking, and it came back with new Labour, and it won three elections. Um, you're already seeing a bit in, say, France with the candidacy of Emmanuel Macron. For what it's worth, I don't think he will do very well at all this time. That's someone who's thinking creatively about how a kind of centre-left platform might look different now. As I say, I don't think he's probably done enough thinking yet, but he has done some. So if you're on the left, there might be a positive there in the, in the long term. We might see a bit of a resurgence, some really creative thinking from left-wing parties to come back and sort of fight against this wave that's at the moment threatening to sweep them out of existence. And Owen, what about you? Any upsides to the mini-Trumps? Well, I think that the, the major upside is that they, uh, rather like Trump himself, they've come to power on a platform of magical thinking that it's actually not that, that, that is what is now fashionable to describe as post-reality politics. In other words, it's this magic formula of you know, lowering taxes and increasing employment and you know, bringing back industry and reviving the economy and so on, uh, which all sounds great, but actually it's just uh, financially illiterate and actually is not going to be in any way realisable. And I think people are going to realise that the EU is not the, the 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 core of the economic problems of Bulgaria. It's it's the opposite. It's actually massively beneficial for Bulgaria to be in the union. I suspect that the the sort of honeymoon uh, between the populist nationalists is actually going to be rather, rather a short one, and they're going to be derailed pretty quickly by reality. And people are going to sort of come back to just because of their hyperbolic promises and the fact that actually pro those promises are undeliverable. I think means a backlash, which is inevitable in any democracy, is going to come fairly soon. Uh, well, I think that is probably just about all we've got time for. So thanks very much, Owen, for coming on. Uh, thanks to everybody uh, who's been listening at home. You can find us uh, every week on Acast, SoundCloud and iTunes. On all of those places, please like us, please subscribe us, please do whatever it allows you to do. We'd appreciate it uh, very much. Um, if you can't wait another week for the next one, do go on to newsweek.com or pick up a copy of Newsweek. Thanks very much. Don't you love an extra $100 in your pocket? Have a TurboTax expert file your taxes for you by March 31st to get $100 back instantly. Because no matter what moves you made last year, TurboTax makes them count. That means getting $100 back and 100% accurate taxes only from Intuit TurboTax. Must file by 331. Credit only applicable to federal filing fees with TurboTax full service. Offer can be modified or terminated at any time. 